This podcast is brought to you by Eisner Award-winning Legend Comics and Coffee in Omaha, Nebraska, and supporting listeners like you. Go to TwoHeadedNerd.com and click Donate, or visit Patreon.com backslash TwoHeadedNerd to become a supporter today. Ha-cha! Like everybody knows it's quarantine. We're all fucking quarantined. It's all it's quarantine, baby. It's never going to end. We're never going back to no. real life. But we're broadcasting from the ziggurat in Omaha. This is reality. Metro area. Just deal with it. <laughs> I don't mean to sound like this, but I'm going crazy. And it is our pleasure to welcome you to episode 570 of the Two-Headed Nerd Comic Book Podcast. Nerds, my name is Matt Baum. We're stuck in here together. There's nothing we can do but cough in each other's mouths mm-hmm. just to test to see if we get sick. Just keep passing the COVID back and forth. Just back between and forth. the two of us. If we pass it between the two of us, everything's fine. Yeah, we're up to COVID 25 now. It just keeps going up. <laughs> I am the Internet's Joe Patrick. This week, we are continuing our romp through comics history with special spotlight reviews on eight different comics starring monsters from across the comic time stream. Eh, because there are still no new comics for now. <laughs> yeah, hey, wait, we'll, we'll talk about that in a minute. After that, it's up to the THN Sanctum Sanctorum, where we'll tell you all about what we're going to read next week, so you can read along with us. And finally, with the 50th anniversary of Marvel's Conan number one coming up, Wooly Toots was kind enough to invite Joe and I to his Swords and Scrolls segment for a discussion on Conan number one at 50. But before we dare tread where monsters dwell... Let's stomp all over this week's Nerd News. Nerd News. Monster noises. Yeah, monster noises. Yeah. Hey, listen, we've got some good news this week. A THN listener has made a pledge to support local comic shops. An anonymous listener has agreed to make a sizable donation to our own local comic shop, Legend Comics and Coffee. And he's going to let us take full credit for it, which yep. is so cool. That's Thank what a, you. That's what anonymous <laughs> means, baby. In addition, he has agreed to match every donation that you, the listener, makes to your own local comic shop up to a total of $1,000. All you have to do is make a donation to your local comic shop in any amount and email us the proof. It has to be email. I can only keep yeah. track of one thing, please. Shoot us an email, just like of the PayPal receipt or whatever, so we can make sure that it's a real comic shop and, you know, check you guys because most of you are liars and criminals. And that's fine. <laughs> it's We're not, not judging. It's not so much that, but if I have to keep track of like Facebook posts and Twitter posts, right. uh, yep. then I will lose my mind. So let's email it to us, and we'll do subject comic shop donation. There you go. Uh, There's no real deadline to this promotion. Just simply email us the proof of your donation to your local comic shop of your choice, any shop. The anonymous donor did say they would start on the 1st of May. That is when they will be making their donation. So It's practically the 1st of May already, so we might as well just start it. It's totally kick-ass, and this is great, and I love, we talked about it last week too, the community coming together to do what we can to save, you know, the comic shop that we love so much, and maybe you're even doing it for one that you hate, and you just don't want to go away. Nothing wrong with that, all right? (laughs) Yeah, I mean, and so, I mean, it should be stressed, we are not talking about making purchases, we're talking about donations. 
straight up donation. Contact yeah. your comic shop and uh, say, can I just send you some money? Much period. in the same way that we talked about Rob Liefeld sending out donations last week. Yes. Just make a donation to your comic shop. Send us the proof. However you choose to make that donation is fine. As long as we have proof of it, we will add it to the tally and our anonymous donor will match that until we hit one grand. And that is just such a generous gesture. I'm so moved by it. From the THN TMZ desk, it's time for some Hollywood talk, y'all. Let's start with J.J. Abrams' Bad Robot Productions. They are developing a TV show set in the Justice League Dark Universe. What about that sentence do you not like? Is there a Justice League Dark Universe? Exactly. This is going to be for HBO Max, as announced in Variety. The, the thing that I don't like when I hear things like set in the Justice League Dark Universe, be, what that says to me is these characters from Justice League Dark will be here all alone in their own little Justice League Dark Universe. And you know Wonder Woman's not going to be there. <laughs> uh, okay, well, hear me out. Uh, very recently, the CW had a very successful five-part crossover, Crisis on Infinite Earths. I agree. Uh, and they established a multiverse wherein uh, all of these disparate properties exist. You think this is going to play off that and HBO is going to let CW mess around in their own pool? No, 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 no. I don't think that. I think that CW, I think that the CW established that Stargirl, Doom Patrol, Titans, right. a, a Swamp Thing, everything else that uh, exists separately from the CW shows exists in the same multiverse, and this is not going to be anything different. This is like a different part of the multiverse it's gonna be it's gonna be a part of that larger multiverse and i'm fine with that that's still what i'm saying no it's, it's not still it's cut off it's still cut off in its own little corner of its own universe but that's or fine whatever. so is doom patrol so is titans so is swamp thing yeah and those shows are fine and swamp thing is gone and we'll see if doom when doom patrol comes back what happens doom patrol's been just, renewed and that's that's fine for Doom Patrol, something that weird. I'm okay with it. But Justice League Dark, there's some pretty major, you know, Justice League characters. Is it really? I, I Constantine, want it to be Man Bat, Swamp Thing. Is it really? I mean, that I many just don't, major I don't Justice League separated. characters? You've got Wonder Woman leads the team. So what? She's not going to be here. I'm not saying it's going to be bad. It just bothers me when we start doing we just disconnect everything. No, while I, Marvel is connecting everything. I don't think that it matters. I think that I think that the DC, uh, I think that the CW did Warner Brothers a huge favor by saying, hey, look, it all counts. They're just not all together. Yeah. I and that's, that's fine because nah, that's fine always been DC's MO. Yeah. Fine for you, maybe. I, I just it don't is love fine. It. it is fine for me. I, I think the show will be good. I don't need a Justice League dark movie. Where Wonder Woman references what happens in Zack Snyder's Justice League movie. Well, this is a TV show. No, I don't. I think they're done with that. I don't think we're ever yeah, going to see anything so like who cares? that again. Let it but happen. But I do think anything that happens in HBO Max is going to only be connected to HBO Max stuff. But why does that matter? It Just bothers me, Joe. I want them all to play in the same sandbox like my Marvel shows. But they're not doing it. They're not even your <laughs> even your Marvel shows didn't do it. Runaways, Cloak and Dagger, they didn't Gone. do it. Gone. 
regardless, don't say gone, gone. They lasted for several seasons. But they're also gone, and now we've got this new Disney thing where Marvel's doing all their TV, and it's all going to be connected. Yes, but they haven't been all connected until now. Yes, and, it's and not I didn't been a problem. like those either. Well, that's your fault. <laughs> Spike Lee could be getting in superhero game, and he has probably picked, arguably, the coolest possible Marvel character you could think of to adapt to the movie screen. Who is it, man? Is, you, it, is it Luke Cage? I'm going to let you guess, Joe. Is it's it Luke not Cage? Luke Cage. I'll give you a hint. He is black. Oh, it's not Wolverine then. Is it black Wolverine? Nope. It's Spawn. I'm sorry. It's Nightwatch is what I meant to say. The Hollywood Reporter has confirmed. Mar oh, sorry. The Hollywood Reporter confirmed this. Sources say Lee's involvement is early at this point, but that he could potentially direct a film written by Luke Cage showrunner Chio Hodari. Pardon me, Chiu Hodari Coker, centering on African-American scientist Dr. Kevin Trench, first introduced in the comics in 1993. We reviewed that first appearance two weeks ago, and it was garbage, complete garbage. Did he not <laughs> listen to the episode? Oh, my God. It's such a spawn ripoff. <laughs> yeah, why this is happening I have no clue. There's so many great black superheroes Spike Lee could do. And Nightwatch? You've got to be kidding me. I really don't get it. I don't understand. I mean, other than, like, maybe it's a blank slate, and they can do whatever they want with it, and they better, they better change the hell out of this. Because if they don't, Todd McFarlane is going to own Marvel Comics. <laughs> <laughs> it's baffling, to say the very least. I don't understand... Why in the vast library of Marvel characters, even black Marvel characters, you would pick Nightwatch? Honestly, the only thing that I can possibly think, a, a guy like Spike Lee is going to want 100% control. And if he came to them and said, I want to do Luke Cage, but I want to do it this way, I can see Marvel going, no, I mean, like, we got to do Luke Cage like Luke Cage. <laughs> but tell you what, Nightwatch, you can do whatever the fuck you want with that character. I don't see Marvel saying no to, to Spike Lee. I mean, if he wanted to change something, they've fired some pretty big names here and there, you know? Spike Lee's a, been around for a while, but, like, Brad, wasn't it Brad Bird that got it fired? It was Edgar Wright. Pardon me, Edgar Wright? Well, regardless, the only thing I can think of is they're letting him do this as a blank slate that he can do whatever he wants with because the, the character means the character is nothing. No, the right. Is it, is, it is nothing, but it's like, it's like they said, yeah, Spike Lee, we want you to direct black Panther. And Spike Lee said, okay, great. But I want him to be from Chicago, not Wakanda. Right. Yeah, exactly. I mean, I could see them saying, no, we're not doing that. Spike. It's like, no, he has and to be from Wakanda. <laughs> And him saying, I want more control. And them saying, hey, Nightwatch, do whatever you want. Literally anything. Whatever you want, it's yours. <laughs> well, more power you know to what? him. If they go full on 90s schlock and just do it exactly like the comic, I'll love it. <laughs> I'll I, mean, like, sure. I, cannot, like, I can't believe you have the balls to do that. If we get a Nightwatch movie from Spike Lee, yeah, I'll be thrilled. It's, not, it's and, never going to happen. And it'll be good. It, yeah, I don't think it happens. It will personally. be good. Uh, we do have some image news. Uh, Rodney Barnes and Jason Sean Alexander's creator-owned image comics, Philadelphia, Sins of the Father, is in development for television through Blinded by the Light producers Levantine Films. This was announced by Deadline. Philadelphia tells the story 
of a cop who returns home to Philadelphia after his father's death only to uncover a supernatural mystery in his hometown. Spoiler alert, it's vampires, baby. You can hear Joe Patrick's review of Philadelphia number one on Two-Headed Nerd number 553 it was at TwoHeadedNerd.com. As I recall, Joe Patrick gave it a buy it. I liked it a lot. Good stuff. You can also uh, pick up the first two trades, I believe, of Philadelphia are out. They're in stock. Go to your comic shop, order them, get them, help your comic shop out. It's a great book. Do it. I think that it uh, definitely lends itself to serialized episodic television. Oh, without a question. Yeah. I mean, like, this is, it's perfect. And a lot of this image stuff just feels like they're writing TV treatments anymore, yeah. which is fine. And, like, if it's more good supernatural TV, totally in. Perhaps the best news of the week, though, Joe Patrick. Star Trek The Next Generation actor LeVar Burton, I was going to say, reading Rainbow Star LeVar Burton is in <laughs> talks to reprise his role as Jordy LaForge for season two of CBS All Access Star Trek Picard. If you thought that you cried a lot in the first season, if Joy LaForge shows up and everything is fine, I will cry. If they kill him, I'll never stop crying. <laughs> uh, I have been I have been rewatching Community and that episode where LeVar Burton shows up to talk to Troy and yeah. Troy just uh. shuts down completely. <laughs> yeah. Uh, yeah, that would be me. That would be me if yeah, LeVar totally. Burton shows up as Jordi LaForge on Picard. I love this. And you, you know what's going to happen. I mean, after I think the way people reacted to Marina Sirtis and uh, I can't say Riker's name. So Jonathan Frakes. Thank you, Jonathan Frakes. I think they're like, go get everybody. Get them all. <laughs> yeah, I mean, and Brent Spiner showed up, and they already announced yeah. that Whoopi Goldberg was going to be there as yep. Guinan. Guinan's going to show up. I, oh, my God. I love it. I just, like, <laughs> the only people I'm missing are Worf and O'Brien. Please get those guys. <laughs> they're on Deep Space Nine right now. Just bring them home. Actually, they're probably off Deep Space Nine by now. This is several years later. Uh, well, I mean, probably, yeah. Yeah. Finally, Diamond Comics Distributors has confirmed that they intend to resume distribution of comics and other products in mid to late May. Here's the wrinkle. DC Comics isn't willing to wait. <laughs> They're jumping on the Trump train, baby. Yeah, they They're are. They're going to liberate comics. <laughs> DC has announced plans to resume the limited release of new comic books on Tuesday, April 28th. Now, they say that this is after surveying 2,000 North American stores. The publisher has announced plans to resume releasing a trimmed-down line of titles, which will also be released simultaneously on DC's usual digital platforms. What in the blue hell does surveying over 2,000 North American stores mean? They, they literally said, hey, uh, would you guys want to do this? And they were like, do you guys want new comics to come back? Check yes, no, or maybe. <laughs> Right, yeah, totally. <laughs> uh, because based, uh, we'll talk about this in a minute, because based on the response to this news, retailers are not pleased. No. Uh, a lot of these places had to close because they've got sick fucking workers. Yes. And now we're going to be like, come back to work. Right. Do your well, job. And stay-at-home orders and uh, yes. non-essential business closures. This is insane. It's like the mayor of the town in Jaws saying, Yep. Yeah. We're definitely going to be open. <laughs> <laughs> Everything's fine. We're going to be open in time for the spring beach season. 
I'm calling my shot right now. This gets rolled back. This gets rolled back. In fact, it would not shock me by the time we are done talking about it live right now. Not when the show airs live right now. If this hasn't already been rolled back. It is currently 537 p.m. on Wednesday, April 22nd for the record. (laughs) Here's the best part. This new paradigm kicks off on, again, Tuesday, not Wednesday. What in the hell? April 28th with new issues of Daphne Byrne. The Dreaming and Batman Giant. <laughs> oh, that's gonna kids are gonna flock to the stores for those. Are you kidding me? Along with reprints of Batman 89 and Nightwing 70. Uh, I'm camping out. I, that's it. I'm camping out to get that reprint of Nightwing 70. <laughs> <laughs> My the, God. The following week, uh, the main superhero line returns with Batman and the Outsiders, The Flash, uh, Green Lantern, Hawkman, House of Whispers, a black label shit about Joker and Harley. Again, another reprint edition. To their credit, DC has said, we are slowly rolling out these titles. I mean, sure, but they're going with two new distributors, Lunar Distribution and UCS Comics Distribution. One's going to handle the Western United States. The other one's going to handle the East. There is no way that this is not a complete clusterfuck. There just isn't. Well, mainly because... These two distributors are better known as Discount Comic Book Service and Midtown Comics, two of the largest competitors to smaller comic shops in the direct Jesus market. Christ, deep you guys. Discount, deep discount retailers. DC has stated that all orders through Diamond for the first half of April have been canceled to be replaced by this new distribution model. Good God. However, Diamond has counter-announced that they plan to resume operations of their own in mid-May, and they said that all retailer orders for DC Comics are still in the system. Yeah, you can't just make them, you can't take them away. They've already been ordered. DC can't just say, um, nuh-uh, Diamond. You know, that's not how it works. The orders are placed, placed through comic shops that already spent money. Okay. And, and I would wager that the at least, at the very least, the first two weeks worth of these announcements are oh already God. in the Diamond Warehouse waiting to be shipped. Of course. Of course they are. What are they thinking? Other than trying to start a war and burn it all down, I have no clue what they're trying to do here. This is bonkers. This yeah. is completely bonkers, DC. And this is a worst. This is... Worse than the other really bad decisions that you made two weeks ago. Retailer reaction to the plan has been, uh, to be fair, mixed. (laughs) Leaning towards the extreme negative. (laughs) The main reason for the pushback is the idea of shops handing their own customer and ordering data over to their direct competitors. Yeah. And the fact... That the vast majority of shops will neither be ready nor allowed to reopen due to their local stay-at-home laws. This is so stupid. There are people out there that I respect that are saying, look, DC's trying something to keep comics alive, and I get it. But this is not the way to do it. This is just not the way. This is the way to get sued by Diamond Comics. That's what this is. All this is is a gigantic legal quagmire waiting to happen. Yeah. I don't know what they are thinking. Well, and not only that, but no other then, publisher, no other publisher has planned 
to resume shipping with these new distributors as of this recording. In fact, the guy from UCS said no one's even asked. Outspoken retailer Brian Hibbs compared it. Uh, he said, like, imagine if they said that Amazon is your new distributor. Right. How is it any different? <laughs> exactly. Or they're like, hey, Barnes & Noble, you're going to be working with Amazon now. Does that bother you? <laughs> right. You <know? laughs> yeah. It's ridiculous. It's ridiculous. And I'm fully expecting DC to roll back or change their tune somehow, probably by the time we record next week. That is your nerd news for the week, but I'm sure we missed plenty of other stories while waiting to talk about the news so DC can course correct. So hit us up on the THN forums, big news section, or any of our social media outlets and talk to us about these stories or anything you think we missed. Five bucks says we stop recording right now and check the news sites and they've already decided not to do this. You start talking <laughs> and I will look right now. It is spotlight review time in the ziggurat and this week, once again, there are no new comics. But apparently they're coming in two weeks. Now, the ancient curse that binds us to life in the ziggurat is forcing Joe and I to review eight comics where monsters were the stars. Joey, what terrifying tale are you reviewing first? Uh, I have no new DC news, by the way. Okay. I would have lost five bucks on that one. But yeah. I feel like it was a pretty good bet. It was a safe bet. <laughs> Before we do that, let's wet our whistles with a cocktail from the official THN bartender, Mr. Justin Fletcher, who put together the cocktail of the week. Justin, what are we sipping on today? All right, nerds. This week, uh, we're talking about, I guess, the first appearance of uh, Swamp Thing. Uh, I went deep into the uh, the book of cocktails, and lo and behold, did we find a, a cocktail from New Orleans actually called a Swamp Thing. Um, and relatively easy to make with ingredients I think most people will have minus one. Okay, so this is uh, a total of three ingredients. Um, all three of uh, these are equal parts, so you can make this this drink as big or as small as you want it, as long as everything is equal. So you're going to do gin, hypnotic, which uh, blue hypnotic to be specific, um, and say D. Who knew? So you're just going to take, let's just say we're going to make a, you know, a six ounce drink here. You're going to go two ounces of hypnotic, blue hypnotic, two ounces Sunny D, two ounces gin, um, boom. There's your swamp thing. It's easy. It's done. You don't have to do anything but put it that straight, all that stuff straight into a glass. Maybe give it a nice little stir with a spoon or something just to mix it up. But that is a swamp thing. Personally, I've never had one of these, um, but I think I'm going to have to give one a try. Uh, just to see because I'm kind of intrigued by the whole Sunny D deal. Um, but that's it, nerds. Enjoy. Thank you, Justin, Matt, Excelsior. Excelsior. Chin chin. Chin chin. Clink. My first review is Detective Comics 400 from DC Comics from 1970. Writer Frank Robbins and legendary artist Neil Adams introduced the world to Man Bat, a character that I was surprised to see wasn't always the animalistic monster he was later known to be. Me too. I had no clue. Yeah. <laughs> this like... issue portrays the cursed scientist Kirk Langstrom as a reluctant partner to Batman, one that could have ended up being a real hero. 
I absolutely love this era's version of the Batman. He's very much the Dark Knight detective, popularized by Adams and writer Denny O'Neill, but he's also neither the grim and gritty Frank Miller version or Grant Morrison's unbeatable God. <laughs> this Batman actually struggles a bit and then uses what he's learned to improve and adapt. Yeah, that was one thing that I I forgot that I loved about this run. I haven't read it in so long. I forgot how Batman was. Yeah. Because Batman today, even, like, I, I'm not going to say it goes as far as Grant Morrison's, like, unbeatable Batman, but that definitely has affected the character, very right. much so, yeah. and he is not like this anymore. Back then, he was fallible. He was good, right. really yeah. good at his job, but fallible and part of the detective work was figuring out what he was doing wrong. Right. I liked that they really leaned into the detective stuff. We don't see that anymore. No, we don't. I loved the story. I found myself wishing for a story where Man Bat actually became a heroic ally to Batman. But hey, he's in the pages of Justice League Dark as a heroic yeah, ally. Yeah, right. It's true. Come on, man. It's true. Adams's legendary talent is on full display in this issue. There's also a fun murder mystery backup starring Batgirl by Denny O'Neill and, once again, Gil Kane. Detective Comics 400 was an excellent introduction to one of my favorite misunderstood Bat villains. I'm giving it a buy it. Yeah, I had never read this, and I can't believe it because I love Man Bat so much. And I think I just kind of assumed Man Bat was the character that we knew, like, sort of from the DC animated series, you know, the animated Batman. Sure, almost, yeah. Where he was just like a werewolf, more or less, but he was a bat, and he was right. crazy. He turned the bat, he went crazy. You know, what do you do? And the man bat we have now in Justice League Dark is much closer to this man bat. Yeah, he thinks and He speaks. really is. Right. And I just forgot how much I love Denny O'Neill's Batman. Oh, my God. It's so good. <laughs> uh, well, uh, Frank Robbins wrote the lead story, but Denny O'Neill's backup story was really good. Yeah, uh, I know. I just, just reading that backup story was just like, oh, man, I love Denny O'Neill's Batman. <laughs> I was tickled to find uh, a letter in the letters page by future Batman writer Alan Brennert. <laughs> oh, no uh, shit. Which is something I always look for in these old reviews. <laughs> It was like little Alan Barrett was like, Dear DC Comics. Couldn't have been that little because it wasn't that many years later. No, huge buy it from me too. Matt, what do you got? Well, everybody knows that I'm a huge Godzilla guy and love me some Godzilla, but there are some things that it turns out Marvel Comics just shouldn't do. I'm reviewing Godzilla King of the Monsters number one from Marvel 1977. Wolverine creator Herb Trimpey is on art here, and I love Herb Trimpey. I want to go on record as saying, love the guy. He is a legend. I hate the way he draws Godzilla. It's so bad. He's got big birthing hips and, like, long human arms, kind of, and this weird bulbous face. He's got pecs. It's so weird. I just don't like it at all. Doug Mensch is on the script here, and he narrates the hell out of everything because he has to, because Godzilla can't talk. So <laughs> There's so many things wrong with this Godzilla comic, and it's not even the comic's fault, honestly. You know that Marvel got the license for this. They got excited. Godzilla was hot at the time, and they were like, let's Marvelize Godzilla. Let's just do it. Godzilla does not work in the marvel universe he just doesn't 
since this is Godzilla's first Marvel appearance, they had to bring the MCU into play. They just had to at the time because they were doing it to everything. So who do you call to stop Godzilla? Not the Avengers, not the Fantastic Four, not even Nick fucking Fury. Nope. You call in Dumb Dumb Dugan and Jimmy Woo. <laughs> yeah, totally. <laughs> I mean, it's just so asinine. This is a giant monster destroying a city. And they're like, ah, dum dum and shield will take care of it, right? The rest of Trimpy's art is really good. I love his shield anti-Godzilla unit. Dugan's outfit is like super fucking cool. He's got like these armbands on and shit. <laughs> he just can't draw Godzilla. And I love Doug Mensch. The guy's a fantastic writer. I know jump Joe jumps on me every time I start asking him, where are the other heroes in this book? But if you're going to give Godzilla the Marvel treatment, it is hard to believe the Avengers don't show up to stop him. <laughs> I agree. It's ridiculous. Too much narration here. And while the comic does have its charm, it also loses something vital to the character of Godzilla. And that is that Godzilla is a force of nature and cannot be stopped and comes and goes. He's better in a movie situation where he shows up, does his thing. They figure out a way to either pause it or let him finish and he leaves. It's just not an ongoing series. They shouldn't have done this. Godzilla cannot work in the Marvel U. I'm giving it a skim it because Herb Trimpey has some great art in here. And I honestly don't think it's the creator's fault. I'm not even a Godzilla super fan, but I looked at this and I'm like, man, that does not look like Godzilla. No, it doesn't. It <laughs> and is... I almost wonder if there was an editorial mandate. They were like, no, we want a Marvel Godzilla. We want a recognizable Marvel Godzilla or something. It, it, it's hard it to know. It was so off model for the character that it was distracting yeah. to me. Really? Um, I loved all the shield stuff. I find it very hard to believe that Herb Trimby couldn't draw a fucking awesome Godzilla. Well, sure, he could have, but yeah. I, but I don't know why they didn't. Uh, I loved all the shield stuff, but I totally agree. It's not like Rom. Like, Rom, no. sh Rom shows up in the Marvel Universe. It's a secret invasion. Right. It's a small town. There's no reason why anybody would have known what was going Nobody on. Nobody even knows it's happening. In Clariton, whatever state it was. Godzilla shows up. If, if S.H.I.E.L.D. knows enough to respond, right. the Avengers know enough to respond. If a giant monster is attacking any city, I yes. don't care if it's the smallest city in the United States, right. it's on the fucking news. This, this, should have not, this should have not been an incontinuity story. No. The inclusion of Dum Dum Dugan, of all people, was fun for me as a novelty, but it's it, it does not work. No. Uh, the art was good, even though the character model was off. Uh, I also, like, the freaking, uh, when the helicarriers showed up and all of those, like, weird shield paratroopers showed up. Yeah. Wearing their <laughs> tiny helicopters or whatever <laughs> yeah. they were. I was like, yeah, that kicks ass. Uh, but, yeah, no, it's it's not great, dude. Uh, yeah, you I'm may as well it... send Shang-Chi to stop him. You know, yeah, like, this is yeah, just right. stupid. <laughs> uh, I'm giving it a skim it. Point of order, Herb Trimpey is not usually considered the co-creator of Wolverine. No, I, I'm aware. But, because, he, but he did. Well, he, he drew Wolverine. that issue, but Len Wein wrote it, and John Romita Sr. designed him. Oh, really? I thought yeah. Herb Trimpey helped with the design. No, no. John Romita Sr. designed Wolverine. Uh, but 
anyway, Herb Trimpey is still a great artist. Uh, yeah, it's a schema for me. This is a ridiculous addition to the Marvel Universe, and it just doesn't work. Joe Patrick, back to you to talk about my favorite comic book monster. It's true. I'm kind of surprised that I beat you to it. I just didn't want to do anything that I'd already read. Uh, well, and I had not read this. Uh, my okay. pick, my next pick is House of Secrets number 92 from DC Comics 1971. I read and loved early reprints of Swamp Thing's original series by Len Wein and Bernie Wrightson, but this was my first time reading his actual first appearance. I was surprised to find that his original origin is totally different. Oh, yeah. Some of the key elements are still there, like the sabotaged science experiment and his lost love. I even think that his wife's name is the same, Linda. Yes. But otherwise, Alec Holland and Abby Arcane are nowhere to be found. It, yeah, I think the guy that becomes Swamp Thing is actually named something different. Yes. <laughs> uh, still, Wrightson's art is gorgeous, of course. And this was a really fun read about a prototype version of the character we all came to love, and yes, I'm assuming that everyone loves Swamp Thing. This was an anthology title, so the rest of the issue is full of short horror tales narrated Tales from the Crypt style by Abel, of Cain and Abel fame, who would become a staple of Neil Gaiman's Sandman. They aren't all great, and DC couldn't even be bothered to give credit for half of them. <laughs> but I still had a lot of fun reading them. Written by somebody. <laughs> Not even. House of Secrets 92 is a really interesting artifact of its time, and it's a fascinating glimpse of what would become an iconic character. I'm giving it a buy it. Yeah, this was basically like the Bernie Wrightson swamp monster that he created that would become Swamp Thing. And there was even like a prototypical one before this even that was even less close to the new Swamp yeah, Thing. Yeah, like I don't think you really see that anymore where it's like no. this is a character that is in name only the character that you that you would come to love. But I also think books like House of Secrets were a good place for them to bounce ideas around and yeah. just see – like, hey, does this work? Does this work? And people reacted to this. And then immediately, Wrightson gets his own Swamp Thing miniseries after that, and they flesh it out more, and that's where we meet Alec Holland and whatnot. I, I adore this book for what it is. It is one of my favorite comic books ever printed, and it is the comic book that I have spent more money on than any comic in my collection. I have a very nice edition of it. Come to my house and try and take it off fucking kill you all right so i love the swamp thing so much i love this issue <laughs> it definitely gets a buy it and i loved house of secrets because these anthology books back in the day it, it was like the marvel tryout book you know basically where they were like i don't know just get in there and write some stories we'll see what people like and we'll go from there if it spins out or something great they don't do shit like that anymore i don't even think that was really the mandate of house of secrets i think it was just like here's three horror tales every issue yeah, but I also think, like like you said, they didn't even name the writers in some of these. I have a feeling they were trying out new writers and new artists and stuff like that. And just like, yeah, all right. Okay, kid, check it out. You got six pages in House of Secrets 15 or whatever. Sure. Show us what you can do. Because there's no the, – the lead story is going to be something big by somebody cool that's going to sell, and the backup stories are no one. So let's see what they can do. Yeah. And, and you just don't see stuff like that anymore. It, I love this book. Huge buy it for me. Next up, 
the most baffling selection from Matt Baum's picks. Stanley and his monster, number 109, is technically the first issue of Stanley and his monster from DC. Yes. I have never read Stanley and his monster, and the only... Uh, the only experience I had with the character happened much, much later, and I can't even remember what it was. It was in the pages of Kevin Smith's Green Arrow. Yes, yes. And I was just like, all right, whatever you say, Kevin Smith. <laughs> Up until issue 108, Stanley and his monster was a backup story in the pages of a funny animal comic called The Fox and the Crow, which sounds like a hoot to me. <laughs> Stanley and his monster would last for four issues before its cancellation. And you will totally understand why <laughs> if you read this comic. Stanley owns a monster. He's a kid. He's very Dennis the Menace looking. He thinks the monster is a dog. He lives with two green gnomes as well, one of which has a comical German accent and the other has a comical Irish accent. I assume there's a reason for this. They don't explain it here. They both also look more like goblins. Oh, and the ghost of Napoleon is here as well. The script reads like a failed cartoon written by drug-addled adults who are told by their editors that kids love weird, and the weirder, the better. Oh, and by the way, throw in some Civil War jokes. Kids love the Civil War. <laughs> <laughs> I admit, I did not catch up on my Stanley continuity, but this was the first issue of his own series, and it starts in space where Troop 19 of the Boy Scouts of the Universe are headed to the Solar Museum, and Stanley and the gang showed up via a time machine. Not a spaceship, mind you, but a time machine. Then it flashes back to Stanley. Well, maybe the museum is on Earth. It could be. They did never spell that out. I'll yeah. give them that. In the future. <laughs> then we flash back to Stanley getting ready to tell his dad about the crew that lives with him, but instead we get an aside showing his dad's crappy job. Stanley and the gang show up via a time machine. Again, not spaceship. The humor is so adult in nature. Not salty adult by any means, but like jokes about having a crappy office job and funny international accents, civil war jokes, and the hot babysitter who totally wants to have sex with Stanley's dad. <laughs> like, who the fuck is this written it was, for? It, it was like written for the guys that read Playboy just for the articles. Totally. Or the guys that think those Playboy cartoons are... Are actually funny when they're not <laughs> right stanley's neighbor professor bones has gone missing turns out he invented a time machine oh shit it was professor bones wasn't it yep god damn he it appears to stanley as a skeleton asking for help <laughs> but he didn't turn into bones in the time machine he did that working on an invisible ray and was just hanging out in the time machine this is so unfunny weird and like dennis the menace on lsd I cannot give this a bigger leave it. I do not know what they were going for. I don't know what they wanted. And there is no way a kid read this and laughed. <laughs> yeah, I agree. It is so bizarre. It made me mad. <laughs> I read it. It really did. I couldn't, I couldn't even be mad. I read it and I was like, what? What is happening? What? Wait a minute. The, the, yeah, the, the editorial choices are just. I want to see. I want to be in that like, meeting. They told us. <laughs> they told us at the beginning. At the beginning of the issue, they said, "Yep, the ghost of Napoleon is definitely here." And then twenty pages later, 
Which the feels like 50 Na- pages later, by the way. It did feel like 50 pages. <laughs> the ghost of Napoleon shows up and I'm like, wait, what? Why? Why is the ghost of Napoleon there? Yeah. And yeah, it makes it makes it makes no sense. This None. is garbage. And pure garbage. And I'm not even like I'm not somebody that judges kids' comics. I understand things have a concept and they run with it. Sure. But there is literally no narrative reason for Stanley to have a monster, no roommates, and a ghost. None. <laughs> None. Yeah, like nothing. Nothing. Like maybe a curse or something. I don't know. And, and, and to be fair, maybe we missed something. But they certainly don't hint, hint you into it here. No, they don't. Uh, like the monster would have been enough. Totally. You don't <laughs> need the other shit. And the monster isn't even funny. So don't tell me like, oh, no, the gnomes are the funny part. Because no, they're not. And the Napoleon thing doesn't even make sense. So how no, can it be funny? It does not. <laughs> uh, I just want to point out for the record that Stanley and his monster was co-created by Arnold Drake, co-creator of Dead Man and the Doom Patrol. <laughs> there you go. They can't all be winners, Arnold. <laughs> the guy specialized in weird. I guess, <laughs> it's so. a leave it from me. Joe Patrick, now we get to talk about one of my favorite iterations of Spider-Man. Please. <laughs> oh, boy. All right. Next up, it's Amazing Spider-Man number 101 from Marvel Comics 1971. When last we left our intrepid hero, Peter Parker had decided that he had done enough to make up for the death of Uncle Ben. Yeah. So and you know, like Peter like, I think that's it. I'm good. <laughs> and he deserved a chance to live a normal, happy life with his love, sure. Gwen Stacy. I get it. So naturally, he created a completely untested serum to remove his powers that instead granted him six extra arms. <laughs> this brief oddity in Spidey's history is best known for featuring the first appearance of Morbius, the living vampire. Writer Roy Thomas, who I will mistakenly call Jerry Conway later in the episode, is credited (laughs) as, quote, stand-in scripter. And it is abundantly clear that his mandate was to ape Stan Lee's writing style at all costs. Yeah, Yeah, they just got a blanket memo. Everybody write like Stan Lee. That is your job. You will be (laughs) fired if you try and write like yourself. (laughs) Peter does not shut up up during this issue (laughs) even when he's alone there is no internal monologue he verbalizes everything he's like elf he's like i'm walking yeah right singing (laughs) instead of using the same excuse to blow off everyone mono he's a complete dick to his girlfriend for no reason whatsoever The script is full of dated references to Spiro Agnew, the women's lib movement, and a movie called I Am Curious Yellow, which which was already four years old when this issue came out. And I believe it's about sleeping with Asian folks. It might be. Uh, Yeah. (laughs) uh, Once again, last week's favorite artist, Gil Kane, is back again. And his work is fine here, though I don't think it's as good as some of his other efforts. It's bad. Let's call it what it is. It's bad. The recoloring in the reprint doesn't do him any favors at all. 
the actual Morbius content is really goofy, and it made me wonder what made him such a lasting presence in the MCU. Oh, pardon me, not the MCU, but the Marvel U. Yeah. I can't bear to give Amazing Spider-Man 101 less than a skimmit because it was such a formative time in the life of the web slinger, but there are a lot better issues to read if you want a sense of Spidey's history. I can bear to give this a leave it because it was dumb. This was dumb. It was dumb. This was just dumb. It felt like fill-in bullshit, and they were like, I don't know, let's just do something crazy. Let's just do something crazy with Peter. What if we, I don't know, what if we gave him uh, eight arms like a spider? I'm like, well, I mean, uh, eight arms is too many. What if we gave him six like a tick? Yeah. Yeah, that sounds good. We'll give him six arms like a tick. (laughs) Spider-Man calls Kurt Connors to Airbnb his his upstate uh, haunted mansion. (laughs) And Morbius just happens to be squatting in the attic. Sure, why not? No, this is stupid. It, 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 like, it's was it? Did I have fun reading it? Yeah, but this was stupid. It's not great. It's it's not a it's not a great issue. No, I'm giving it a leave it. Speaking of leave it, <laughs> I have this weird love affair with the Werewolf by Night comic, where if I find issues in good condition, I'll buy them. And they're not good. They're just not good. I don't think there is one single good issue of Werewolf by Night. Spoiler alert, this one's not going to get a good review. It was James Brown's favorite comic book series. (laughs) James Brown was on a lot of cocaine at the time, too. (laughs) This is Werewolf by Night number 32 from Marvel 1975. The reason I picked this one is I know we did first appearances last week, but I could not help myself when given a chance to review the first appearance of Moon Knight, and let me tell you, it is a doozy. <laughs> Werewolf by Night was one of Marvel's short forays into horror comics alongside Tomb of Dracula and a gang of others. By 1975, the horror bubble had completely burst, and Marvel was canceling their scary titles by the dozen. Werewolf by Night survived because, again, writer Doug Mensch did everything in his power to make the comic feel like a superhero book, including introducing his own superheroes, Moon Knight, for example. Don Perlin took over penciling duties on the book after Mike Plug, and he's not as good as Plug. <laughs> That's the nicest thing I can say. He does a very weird job of drawing Jack Russell, our main character, and werewolf. And picture a brown, fuzzy man with cut-off jeans and a flat top, and you have got Perlin's werewolf. Mench, Mench's script is just bonkers and i don't know where it comes from because he doesn't write like this it's so weird oh he does write like this does he yes i I haven't encountered it like this where russell's narrating the comic like a beat poet in a fist fight with a with knockoff batman but moves from first to third person narratives so fast that you can't even tell who is actually narrating things like sometimes it's his narration like he's saying like He's like, oh, man, the moon's not supposed to hurt me. It's supposed to make me tougher. But this crazy cat's stabbing me with these cuckoo knives, you know? (laughs) Sure. And then the same box, the same color is in the same panel saying, the werewolf had no idea that the moon knight was so, like, there's two fucking narrators? What is going on? (laughs) Yeah. That's true. I will say Perlin's art is good. 
considering the schedule that the poor guy was working on. He had to draw a werewolf while everyone else was drawing heroes in costumes. Like, his Moon Knight looks kind of cool. Not great, but kind of cool. <laughs> the fight with Moon Knight is definitely brutal. And I know, again, we're not reviewing first appearances, but this is a good first appearance. I am giving this comic a buy it because I love Moon Knight <laughs> so much and they established him really well, but it's not a good comic. It just isn't. <laughs> uh, so Doug Mensch, uh, we talked about Godzilla. Right. Doug, Doug Mensch is very much a writer that like writes to the genre. So like this was very like at night, the werewolf stalks, blah, 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 Moon Knight. Right. Yeah. And Godzilla was all like bombastic, like the Titanic terror of the deep rises from yeah. below. It's all it's all very like genre specific flowery writing. I also think he was like he was I, very much a jobber at the time. Yeah. And they would be like, Doug, you want this? And he'd be like, I'll take it. I'll do it. Yeah. I totally agree that in this issue, he could not decide who was narrating the comic. It was nuts. Because sometimes it was an omniscient narrator and sometimes right. it was Jack Russell. And the, the narration boxes were always the same color and the same shape. So yeah. there's no differentiation. Uh, I was actually stunned at how close this appearance of Moon Knight was to what I know of Moon Knight. Yeah. It's a really good first He looked appearance. like Moon Knight. He threw the fucking moon-shaped daggers. Frenchie was there. Yeah. This is also the first appearance of Frenchie. Yeah, so like they Mensch had this mapped out. He knew he this character is his and he wants to do something with it. And he I'm gonna force it into the fucking werewolf by night. Book. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> for sure. And I uh, I'm I could be wrong. Feel free to fact check me on this, but I think that Doug Mensch went on to write the Moon Knight series. Yes. Uh that Bill Sinkevich drew. Um but yeah, it, it's clear that like he was in love with Moon Knight and did not give two shits about Jack Russell. <laughs> uh, I'm giving this a skim it because it was terrible. <laughs> but I thought the Moon Knight stuff was great. Yeah, I mean, that, I just my love of Moon Knight is making me give it a bite. I honestly. hear you. I hear you. My final review goes to Tomb of Dracula number ten from 1973. Speaking of Marvel horror titles. That's right. You now, you may have noticed, but I did not really mean to have most of my picks have a pseudo vampire theme. Uh, Man Bat, Dracula, Morbius. Yeah, but Man Bat's not really a vampire. It's true, but like, I, you know, I didn't mean for it to happen. Gotcha. He does turn into a bat. That is a vampire. Yeah, he's, a, yeah, he's bat, bat like. Uh, this issue introduced Blade the Vampire Hunter. To the world as a leather jacketed black exploitation refugee throwing wooden daggers. I would love a serious modern take on this version of the character. Totally. <laughs> but this was a nice substitute. One thing I really loved is that they did not shy away from the horror of Blade's mission when he kills a vampire. It's not gory in the comic, like the art's not gory. Right. But they don't dissolve into a convenient cloud of ash. Instead, they revert to the human version of themselves that they were when they were first turned. Yeah, in just fact, like the old Hammer movies. Yeah, that's like that's, there's yeah. a moment in the comic where like Blade kills a vampire that was an 18-year-old kid when he got turned. Yeah. And he gets called out on it. 
And Blade was like, whatever, dude. Vampire. Doing my job. Yeah. You don't yell the postman for delivering the mail. That's right. Uh, Because they had 70 issues to fill somehow. Because they had to fill 70 issues somehow, writer Marv Wolfman has Drac wooing a cruise ship of the rich and famous only to encounter an unexpected mutiny and an attack by Blade. Uh, You know, like you do. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I mean, like, who could see that coming? It's, <laughs> You're a con man. You're trying to take over a cruise ship. <laughs> who could know that was going to happen? Uh, it's all very silly, and Dracula seems especially ineffectual against very simple odds. <laughs> the mo- Again, the modern recoloring of this comic does not do the amazing Gene Colan art any favors, but his style somehow shines through. I've heard and read a lot about this legendary series, but I have to admit, this silly issue maybe is not the best example. I'm giving Tomb of Dracula number 10 a skim it, but I really do- did love seeing like Leather Jacket played. I love the Tomb of Dracula series, and that's another one that I will buy back issues of whenever I find them. Gene Colan's art, if you can find the old issues, the art is incredible. Gene Colan is such a badass. It's true. And I want this Dracula in the Marvel Universe so bad. Like, I love him so much. Closest we got to it was in that Captain Britain and was it MI-13? Yes. Where Dracula was living on the moon. He was shooting vampires at Earth like from the moon. vampire torpedoes at the, <laughs> the Earth, basically. It's so good. It was so fucking cool. I, I'm giving this a buy it just because I love it. And I love the first appearance of this blade. I love his dumb costume. I love his dumb haircut. I love his goggles. <laughs> just, I love it. Yeah. It, I mean, it was really fun. It's just like... Dracula on the cruise ship getting beaten up by a bunch of like one percenters. <laughs> yeah, totally. It was so stupid. <laughs> All right, Matt, finish this up. No set of monster reviews would be complete without a Frankenstein. So I'm reviewing Doc Frankenstein, number one from Burly Man, 2004. Back in the early 2000s, fresh off their success with the Matrix trilogy, the Wachowski siblings opened their own comic imprint. Why? Because that is where the real money was. That's right. <laughs> Doc Frankenstein was their baby, and they would write it as a team with art from the amazing Steve Scross. The premise was very simple. What if Frankenstein was still around today, running a science-driven city with the mission of making the world a better place, and conservative America saw him as a threat so large they formed an army of zealots to take him down. <laughs> the yeah. comic follows Doc Frankenstein's travels through history and the world as he tries to find his place in humanity. Steve Scross was an artist that I first met in the pages of Wolverine, well, 150 back in 2000, and I was leveled by the guy's art. Scross harkened back to that first Wolverine mini by Chris Claremont and Frank Miller, drawing Wolvie as a pincushion riddled with arrows. His art was vicious. It was detailed, and unlike anybody I'd seen draw the old knucklehead in years. In Doc Frankenstein, Scross's art got even better and it matches the Wachowski's just completely insane script. We see Doc fighting a Yeti, killing hundreds of outlaws in the Old West, redirecting a missile launched by a Uh, fighter plane with his bare hands. That scene was (laughs) awesome. 
Doc Frankenstein was an incredible series that we didn't even deserve at the time. And without a doubt, it is my favorite version of Frankenstein in comics. Doc Frankenstein was an incredible series that is without a doubt my favorite version of Frankenstein in comics. It is pure machismo. It's a logical extension of cocaine-fueled 80s action blockbuster movies meets the best of Hammer Horror. I could not love this short-lived series more. I'm giving it the biggest buy it I possibly can. Yeah, this this was awesome. It's uh, incredible. Uh, it is funny to revisit Burly Man comics in the here and now because when I looked it up, I saw that Doc Frankenstein was a six-issue miniseries that took yep. four issue uh, four years to come out. Yeah. <laughs> um, but yeah, I this was so good. It was so good. Uh, the writing is great. Uh, Frankenstein as the reluctant hero that's just like, well, I guess this is what I do now. I guess I protect the downtrodden. And I've got a huge science city full of outcasts. Well, I mean, he is the downtrodden, though. That's it's just true. It. Yeah, no, it's true. You know, I mean, he realizes, and, like, this is my penance, my sainthood, if you will. That, <laughs> that scene where he catches that missile in midair... <laughs> So cool. It's <laughs> rad. It's so yeah. rad. And throws it back at the gym yeah, that uh, shot. <laughs> um I I forget how much I missed Steve uh Scroche's art. And I like to pronounce it uh like like Jim Croce. Yeah, I know. <laughs> um but he is such a tremendous talent. Yeah. And he's just like he he's gone on to other things. And he's come back a couple of times in comics. He did some image work a few years ago, but he's just he's just not a big name in comics. But he is no, such should, a huge talent. Should be a legend. He really should. The guy's amazing. This was beautiful. It was excellently written, and I immediately wanted to keep reading more of it. I'm giving it a huge buy. It. Go check out his Wolverine Blood Debt as well if you haven't. It's like, I think it's a four-issue storyline that started in 150, and it is wonderful. Absolutely amazing. He had a run on Amazing Spider-Man that's really good, even though the yeah. stories themselves aren't great. Um, he did that Brian K. Vaughn miniseries. What was it called? The Canada one? Yeah, the one where Canada is uh, under attack. Yeah. We Stand we, on Guard. We Stand on like Guard, that. yeah. Yeah. Uh, it. He's so good. He really is great. Those are our reviews of this week's monstrous picks. We'd like to hear what you guys thought of this week's comics. And of course, hit us up with your themes for future episodes of The Two-Headed Nerd. Well, apparently we only have to do this for one more week, I guess, and you then new what? comics are back. I don't really care if new <laughs> comics come back. I know. At this point, I'm I having don't too much care. fun. After a monstrous review session like that, it's time to head to the THN Sanctum Sanctorum again to shake the magic eight ball of Marduk and reveal our theme for next week's comics. Looks like next week we're going to be reviewing robot comics. You know, like Division, the Terminator, Herbie. You guys get it. Any comic starring or featuring a robot is game. Robot game on. I love it. Dibs on the vision. 
Big robots, little robots, all the robots. It's going to be fun. Stay tuned to our Facebook and Twitter to see which issues we'll be reading so you can play along. And now, Joey, let's peer into the cursed mirror of Kathan <laughs> and see what is the random trade of the week. My, uh, my pick of the week is Daphne Byrne number four. <laughs> just kidding the THN trade of the week is Tomb of Dracula the complete collection volume one trade paperback from Marvel Comics it's written it's by crazy Marvel how it's never that random you know it always it's really not the random no. of what we're doing yeah <laughs> it's written by Marv Wolfman and various with art by Gene Colan and various it's 512 pages for Holy the low dang. low price of $39.99 here's your solicit Sink your teeth into a vampiric volume that chronicles some of the greatest supernatural comics ever printed. The all-time classic Tomb of Dracula ushered in Marvel's glorious age of horror, while the black-and-white magazine Dracula Lives delivered stories with real bite, and both featured legendary creators, including Gene Colan in his prime, illustrating the Lord of Vampires. The tomb has opened, and Dracula lives again, but his descendant, Frank Drake, joins vampire hunters including Rachel Van Helsing and Quincy Harker in a bid to return him to his grave. Will they drive a stake through Dracula's heart or will that honor fall to Blade? Yeah! Plus, tales of terror from across Dracula's 500-year existence featuring Hellcrawlers, the monster of the Moors, wizards, gargoyles, voodoo queens, and more. What collecting. more could a kid want? I mean, come on! I know. <laughs> this collects Tomb of Dracula 1 through 15, and Dracula Lives 1 through 4. You can get it from your local comic book store now. Do it now. Sorry. The new one that they put out is much, much better than, like, the old Marvel Masterwork reprints and stuff like that. They did yeah, such the modern, a better the job of coloring The modern recoloring these. is bad. Yeah, this one is much better. Still not great. Just but give much me, better. <laughs> just give me scans of the original comics. That's what I'm saying. Kids, it is toots time in the ziggurat, and this week our dungeon master Jared was nice enough to invite us to his swords and scrolls segment for a discussion of the 50th anniversary of Marvel's Conan the Barbarian. Take it away, Toots. Willie Toots, I would like to thank you for welcoming Joe and I to the Sword and Scrolls segment that you normally host so we can talk about the quickly approaching 50th anniversary of Conan, number one, at Marvel Comics. We just found out it's not till October, yes. but time has no meaning anymore. <laughs> That's right. It might as well be this month. It's true. I thought Halloween reading, was next week. old books anyways, right? It, it's Doing true. Of old books. I might never read another new comic. <laughs> Pleasure's all mine, guys. I'm super excited that you both wanted to do this. I thought at best I'd get maybe one of you involved. So this is fun to, to, to have the three of us. I had read this issue before. It had been a long time. I have it in a, like a hardcover collection basically. And it had been a really long time. And first of all, I forgot what a Jack Kirby clone Barry Windsor Smith started out as. That was the first yeah. thing I thought of, man. Mm -hmm. they, were, they were trying so hard to mimic, to, to mimic that style. And at this point in the show, I will have already uh, talked about it, but Marvel in the, in the early 1970s was so desperate to cling to that yeah. house style 
Yeah, because uh, he he was leaving, right? He was going over to D.C., right? Kirby jumped ship to D.C. in, I think, 1971. Yeah, so he had left by the time this was out. No, this came out in 1970. Oh, sorry. He, but he was on the outs, probably. Right. Yeah. Um, I, I talked about it in my Amazing Spider-Man review. They were trying so hard to mimic Stan Lee at all costs, and I'm sure that the artists had a mandate to do the same thing. They were transitioning at the time, like Jerry Conway was taking over the scripting of Amazing Spider-Man. Um, but if you read Amazing Spider-Man 101, pardon me, which I did for this show, you will see that they were trying so hard to copy Stanley's style. <laughs> even, sure. even in that book? Yeah. Okay. That, like, they gave Stanley a credit, even though he didn't actually write it. So it's like <laughs> when David Lynch was fired, basically, from Twin Peaks, and in season two, they were like, just write what you think David Lynch would do. And the, yeah. <laughs> and the writers went, okay, let's get weird. <laughs> the, the other thing that I noticed about this book was at the time, and at this point, I have already talked about my review of Werewolf by Night 32. Everything that was coming out from Marvel, even Werewolf by Night, was a superhero book. It was not a horror comic. It just wasn't. And I will so say... this was, uh, th again, uh, this period of, of Marvel history is in flux as right. things are loosening with the comics code and uh, new blood is coming in. Um Marvel, The Untold Story by Sean Howe is a fascinating examination of this time period where you've got guys like Marv Wolfman and Steve Englehart. Yeah. And uh, and those guys coming in like fresh, young voices. Roy Thomas, uh, he'd been around for a long time. But um, like Marvel, Marvel was there was some turnover happening and the attitudes were changing. And so was the content. Right. But Conan, yeah, this is the this is all the birth of the Bronze Age. You know what I mean? Like this, yep. the seventies, totally. And like some some sources point to Conan the Barbarian as being the launch book, but it's not the like pinnacle event of the Bronze Age. You know what I mean? Like, there's, I'd say it's one of the top three books that is the start of the Bronze Age, but it's definitely not like the book. I think, in it's, my opinion, I think it's also safe to say, like Joe and I have read some stuff recently and reviewed it around the same time period. I think it's safe to say Marvel wasn't putting out anything like this. It feels way different than any other Marvel book. Like in the sense, everything else was kind of superhero fied because that's where their money mm -hmm. was. Conan, while obviously they're not writing the comic adaptation of Lord of the Rings here in this first story, but it does feel like fantasy put to paper. Sure. Yeah. Yeah. It, it seemed like a direct adaptation of, a Robert E. Howard story. Well, aside from all the goofy Starstone, yeah, shit. I, I'm gonna, I, I would disagree there, because like the first thing they do is like they, they get into this guy that's like peering into the Starstone and seeing the future, but not just the future, the far fucking future with spaceships. You know, I was like, yeah, whoa. Well, yeah. I mean, he, he looked too far and it broke his brain. Yeah, that's true. But and they went, and it's happened in other stories. But it's like they did go straight Jack Kirby with it's, it, though. To, yeah, it's yeah, yeah. That's that's what I find super interesting about the first issue too is that they it starts as a pretty traditional conan tale you know right where he's a mercenary fighting against raiders and then and then those two cats find the the shaman sorcerer and his star stone stone and um and it launches into this you know thomas is trying to be like okay this is long past but it's your past right you know what i mean it's marvel's past and and he was trying to show that, and 
to me, it, yeah, it's insane. Because you, you you would think, oh, the, he's Conan's gonna have a there's gonna be a vision and it's gonna show Conan's rise to becoming a king. Yeah, whatever. Like, but then, but then it goes way on beyond that. Yeah, and 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 says, now mankind is reset. It seemed to me that they didn't just jump to the future; they jumped straight to Jack Kirby's 2001 adaptation. Yeah, yeah <laughs> and like yeah. straight to yeah. it. Yeah, <laughs> it it's was pretty nuts. wild. And and to me, like I, like you say, it's probably not like nothing they were writing at the time necessarily. But then, to me, it's like they're trying to latch on to maybe fans that don't know what a sword and sorcery book is, because even. Thomas and Lee didn't know, yeah. you know, Roy Thomas and Stan Lee who were spearheading the, 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 the you know, the book. Um, they really didn't even know. So it's funny to me that they like threw that in to like, so somebody reading it might be like, Oh, this is a, look at this crazy connection. And this book's going to be, yeah. It's almost like they maybe, didn't trust the fans. That line. It's like it's almost like they didn't trust the fans to like read a fantasy book (laughs) without Mm -hmm. without connecting Mm -hmm. it to something, you know, futuristic and weird. Uh, So to speak a little bit about what else Marvel had going on in uh, mid to late 1970, uh, they were still putting out a number of uh, Archie style romance and comedy books, uh, several Westerns. A couple of horror titles. Yeah, uh, the Western bubble would, blew up like in the next couple of years, basically. Uh, some 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 horror books that would go on uh, to to be pretty key, like uh, Fear, which became Adventure into Fear, which gave us Man Thing, right? Which was canceled uh, in nineteen seventy five. And then everything else was superhero. Yeah, everything. So a few westerns, a few romance books, a couple of kitty comedies, and superheroes. So what'd you think of like the story and, 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 and everything? Uh, okay. So I, I mean, I know that I said earlier that it felt like a Robert E. Howard story to me, but to be perfectly fair, I've never read a Robert E. Howard story. Okay. Sure. <laughs> um, it just, it just felt like, like I read it and I was like, yeah, this, it just, it just seems like Conan. Mm-hmm. Uh, I, I have read other Conan books later on. I, I had a couple in the like John Buscema, uh, era in the, in the early eighties, uh, and, uh, you know, I, I remember those fondly. I was surprised by, like, him being such kind of, he was kind of like a scrawny guy. That's how they were drawing him, at least. I know that he was powerful. Oh, well, he's, he's, described, he's described as pantherish. Pantherish. Uh, and in also, the he's very young. So, like, yeah, so Bushima's version is, like. That's that's what I think of when I think the of The Hulk dub version, you know what I mean? Yeah. Like, that's the Hulk dub version. He, he. He should be more of a leaner cat. You know what I mean? Oh, sure. Uh, oh, kind of, you know what? Kind of like how I remember seeing some of the later Dark Horse ones. I think mm-hmm. it may have been during the Brian Wood yeah. era yeah. where, like, he was much more lithe. Yeah, yeah like he was Terry ripped. He was him. still ripped, but he wasn't, like... Terry like, Nord drew him, like, tight little monster, man. He was, like, yeah. so well done. I, like, but, this uh, came out a few years after... Frank Frazetta had painted Conan on the cover yeah. of that, like Conan the Adventurer. And on the cover mm-hmm. of Conan the Adventurer, he's like a power lifter. Like Frazetta yeah, sure. painted him like a, yeah. a wrestler, you know? Mm-hmm. <laughs> and so I was yeah. a little shocked at how skinny he was in this. Even his sword it was just kind of like a dinky little sword, you know? <laughs> yeah. 
so speaking as somebody that's not as connected to the source material as you guys, I had a fun time. Like, like the the sunstones or the starstone stuff didn't seem out of place to me, just because I have I had no reason to believe it didn't belong. Sure. I like I, I liked the the uh, you know um, I again I I talked about it earlier in the show. Spoiler alert: We have not actually recorded that part of the show, um, but the dialogue back in those days, it was like from a different planet. Yeah, sure. Uh, and I read this, and I was like, "This feels like a traditional piece of like literature." Hmm. You know, it, 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 yes, it was illustrated, but like it felt like a fantasy novel come to life in comic book they form. definitely like a pulp, little little pulp story pulp, you would right yeah. yeah they and were it wasn't it wasn't like it wasn't written to match any sort of modern slang it wasn't a full of like the shakespearean these and vows that they put into thor it was just like a, it, it it had some of that flowery descriptive language but to me it fit it, it fit and it read well yeah they went full robert e howard dialogue no question like they yeah. plucked stuff, I'm sure, from the books to try. And, and I love the I love the fact that he was just a fucking he was a fucking pirate. Basically, <laughs> he showed up to fight to whoever paid the the most gold, even though it was gold from the same source. Yeah, they say in the book, um, I forget the guy's name, the blonde haired guy. Oh, is it Olaf or Olaf? Olaf I yeah, think. yeah, the the leader of of that squad. He's like, I don't know why you came. You know, you know, we pay, we both pay with the same northern gold. And, he, and Conan was like, you pay better. <laughs> yeah. I love that. Yeah, he wasn't uh, a hero. And that, that's another no, no, thing that did, like. They did not waste any time trying to convince you that he was a hero. Right. And, uh-huh. and at Marvel at the time, everybody else was pretty much a hero. Even the Western yeah, stories. Yeah, a, a sellsword. Yeah. I, I did love Wolf, the guy in the, in the wolf outfit. Oh, yeah. yeah. <laughs> he, he, he was sandals, great. Sandals. Oh, my God. <laughs> I thought it was really interesting. Uh, all of the like Asgardian uh, Norse uh, kind of descriptors and imagery. They're talking about the the Vanir and the uh, yeah. mm-hmm. and there was even a place called Asgard and yeah. Uh, yeah. And, and I didn't really know that that was part of that lore. Is it? Is uh, it Howard? Howard based his world on our world. Mm-hmm. So like, you know, there's there's counterparts um, for the for the nations in Howard's works for our world you know what i mean oh uh, that was actually one of my favorite parts um i don't know if it was in the copy that you guys read but my copy had the back matter page where roy thomas or the editor whoever it was is describing the world of conan and how howard created it based on Mm -hmm. uh the idea of like this is a post-atlantis world where the before the continents had drifted apart yeah uh this is where africa would be this is where germany yeah. would be yeah they're running around pangea basically yeah, yeah yeah and i was like oh that's so interesting yeah i, I loved that part of it yeah this was the first race of man right and then they were all killed and man restarted more or less yeah right. it was like humanity trying to crawl its way back to civilization after civilization was destroyed well yeah after at the sinking like Asgard and Lemuria, that was like a golden age. Right. And and the cataclysm sank those cities. Okay. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Mm-hmm. No, okay. I agree with that. It basically destroyed civilization, and this is like the Hyborian age. But yeah, then it happened again. 
But then it happened again. <laughs> well, sure. Yeah. Like, yeah. I mean, it's like that DC comic. Uh, it's like that Millennium uh, thing we read where it's like, there's been like an apocalypse every 150 years. <laughs> in DC comics. So as, as far as this Conan goes to the Conan we were getting in modern day, you know, before society fell apart as we know it because of a global pandemic. Um, do you feel like Conan has improved or has stayed true or like, you know what I mean? Like, does this Conan in Marvel set up the Conan we know in comics today, more or less? Oh, yeah. Um, just because he's a, another entity entirely, you know what I mean? The, every media version of the character is its own, and you have to take it as as its own to enjoy it. You know what I mean? So sure. The Conan of the comics is Marvel of the Marvel comics. I should specify is is his own beast. You know what I mean? They Marvelized and it. He can, he can, yeah, he can do, he can get involved in whatever crazy shenanigans. And, and I'm like, well, fine. You know what I mean? Like that's, that's what they do. Sure. You know, <laughs> so I may not. Yeah. We recently saw him at the end of the universe. <laughs> so. Yeah, I don't necessarily follow what he's doing in the Marvel U. Yeah. Didn't he, uh, what, but, that was, what was that Conan? What if, didn't he basically become like the Phoenix or some shit or he got the infinity gauntlet? No, he, well, most recently in the 2099, he got the... It was Conan 2099. That was great. He got great. the Nova helmet. It was the totally Nova great. Helmet, right, yeah. It was like it was old man Conan, and he was like, fuck <laughs> you, the Earth, you're screwed, I'm out of here, and just left. Yeah, I loved it. <laughs> so goofy. Which is what Conan so, would probably do. <laughs> I mean, honestly. So, yeah, yeah, yeah. He's I mean, not a I hero. Say, First and foremost, he's not a hero. But, like, so, like, this is this is, like... This was still to me like the Conan that I remembered from those other issues that my grandma had so, yeah, in her yeah. in her play in her playroom when I was like six years old, and uh, you know he's like running around shouting Crom at everybody. Yeah, and like it took me so long to realize that Crom was not a person. Sure, that Crom was not a character in the book. He was not like a a woman he was trying to woo. <laughs> a woman named Crom. <laughs> That's yeah, a beautiful name. Uh, <laughs> So I, I really had fun uh, with this issue. Yeah, it's 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 very cheesy. It's very time. Uh, but, like, I had a blast reading it. You can tell, even though he was trying so hard to ape Jack Kirby, you could really tell that Barry Windsor Smith was building to something Oh, yeah. Big. Oh, yeah. There's a panel where Wolf and the other guy are, like, are leaning over by the fire, and they're all yeah. in black with just yellow highlights. And I honestly, I copied and pasted it to put in my notes because I want to mention it. It is kick ass, and it's straight up Kirby <laughs> ripoff, but it is awesome. Like Barry Windsor Smith so, was so cool, and when he figured his shit out and came into his own style, I'm sure Marvel at the time was like, "Draw like Jack Kirby," and he went, "Okay," and they were like, "No, more like Jack Kirby," and he was like, "Okay." <laughs> Uh, to, to go back just a tick and answer your question, Matt, I want to say yes, this issue does set him up because like Joe said, it reminded him of the books he read later on. So this, yes, this from this issue echoes through the entirety of his career at Marvel. Like it even like foreshadowed all, keep going. Yeah, all the, all the, the taste and the flavor and like the different weird, we're going to this weird star zone, Conan sees crazy visions, all that. Yeah. 
Yeah, sure. Fair enough. It does set oh, it oh, all up. One last, one last thought and something that I did not know about the character, and I don't know if that's like a Marvel thing or a regular part of his character, is that Conan fucking hates the supernatural. Oh, oh yeah, yeah, yeah. Oh, he's always yeah, he's hated afraid it. of wizards. Hates yeah. it. Hates magic. <laughs> hates anything yeah. like magic creatures and stuff. Hates it. Well, but in this issue, it basically said that he's afraid of it. Oh, Conan yeah. fears nothing except the supernatural. Yeah, he's, but it's a fear that'll drive him, you know, to, to, yeah. to make, yeah, to, to action, to a crazy action. Right. Like he doesn't yeah. understand uh, it. And that's, he understands things he can kill with his sword. Done. And that's what he likes, you know? <laughs> it makes sense. Right. And money. And that's about it. <laughs> now, I feel like we've been doing a lot of the talking, Jared. Do you like this issue? Um, As like a lifelong Robert E. Howard to, fan. I, I was telling Matt earlier that. It's been a while since I'd read it myself, and I've read it a handful of times now, and I forgot how forgetful the issue is. Sure. You know what I mean? Yeah. Um, but then talking to you guys right now and getting your perspectives makes me appreciate it even more for what it was, because I was coming into this pretty negative today where I was like, ah, what, what, what is that first issue? How was that? Like, how did that spawn a successful book? I mean, it is and, weird. Then, it's weird as hell. Getting your, getting your perspectives makes me think, okay, there we go. There was a key there. I can understand how this might be forgettable in the vast scope of Conan Adventures. But if I was a kid in 1970 when this came out, I could definitely understand wanting to read more Conan comics. Oh, yeah. Because right. there, there was nothing like this. There was nothing yeah. like this on the stands. And that's the thing that I kept coming back to was like looking at a lot of the 70s stuff that we've been reading recently. This was just so different. It's wacky and kind of silly and whatever, but it is really different. And yeah, I don't know. As a Conan fan myself, no, it's not very representative of the characters. I understand him and the, and the stories I read and, the, and like the movies that I like and stuff like that. But I also didn't read the entire run of Conan at Marvel, so I don't really know where that went. I mean, it checked a few of those boxes. He saw his enemies driven before him. I mean, sure. Yeah. And you every know, story flashes forward to him women. as a king. So, <laughs> But, you know. I've got some uh, interesting factoids on how this all came about. So in the 1960s, uh, Marvel was getting a lot of letters uh, from fans that were like, you guys need to adapt oh, yeah. some fantasy books into comics. I read about this. And Sword and Sorcery Heroes. And so Stan Lee and Roy Thomas were thinking of thinking it over, and um, uh, Stan says you got to write our uh, publisher and ask him, tell him we got to license, you know, a liter literary hero. But Stan was like, no one in particular, but definitely not Conan. <laughs> and so uh, they were they went after uh, Lynn Carter's hero, Thongor of Lemuria, who is kind of a mix between Conan and. John Carter of Mars and who went on to like all. went on to have a much more celebrated like court character arc and fame. Yeah, and yeah. Like, Thongor, everyone knows and loves Thongor. <laughs> Thongor appears uh, in 1973 is when they finally published Thongor in Creatures on the Loose. Uh, and uh, Stan Lee wanted Thongor because he liked the name. He thought the name sounded more like a comic book character than Conan did. Uh, so anyways, um, I'll give him things. Things with Lynn Carter are dragging, and and they are not getting a response from him. And so on a whim, Roy Thomas is like, 
I'm going to shoot for Conan. We'll see what happens. And so he contacts the state and says, 200 bucks an issue is what we'll give you for the licensing of this character. And they agree. Now, Roy set this up knowing that he had a $150 limit per issue. <laughs> and so he's like, I don't know if this is going to go over now. So he's going to pay and, everybody else like five bucks. Yeah. And he's like, I'm going to have to, he's like, I'm going to have to maybe cover the cost right. myself. So he's like, I'll take a cut out of the writing pay. And, um, we got to find an artist. He wanted, he wanted big John right away, Bushima, but too much money. Right. So yeah. they're like, we're going to do this. We'll do this. Windsor Smith cat. We'll do it. And, uh, French kid. so he'll do it for nothing. Yeah. Right. 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 <laughs> and so by the time they, you know, they, they, so now the book comes out and, and, um, by the time they're working on issue number four, sales figures trickle in on number one and it's, it's a success, uh, based on the small print run, you know, they're like, hot damn, that book sold. So now they're cranking on it. Uh, now they're working on issue 12 and 13 and they have sales figures that show from issue one to seven sales dropped every single month. Right. Oh no. Yeah. And they're like, Oh shit. So Stanley comes in and goes, so Stanley, uh, the, the one part he played in the book, cause he said that, you know, he admitted that sword and sorcery wasn't his thing. So he was like, Roy Thomas, you write it, all that stuff. He's like, I will control the covers because the covers are the point of sale and bang. So Stanley comes in and he goes, problem is there's too many animals on the covers. <laughs> on every single issue, Conan's fighting a big animal, giant snake, right. giant lizard, right. whatever. So Stan's like, too many animals. Stop that. So issue eight, uh, Conan is fighting, uh, armored skeletons. Um, and sales go bam, Cha-ching. Bam. There you go. <laughs> and there we go. Hot bitches and dead stuff. That's what the kids want. <laughs> yeah, yeah. So the book is saved. That's hilarious. Jared, yeah, yeah, thank yeah. you for inviting us uh, into your, uh, what are we in, a hut, a hovel, a, a castle? Or a uh, we're, we, we travel around, man. Sometimes we're in a tavern. Sometimes okay. we're in a dungeon. Sometimes right. we're in a hovel that's true uh, but we gotta we gotta write okay out of three swords what do you guys write in the book i'm gonna give this two i'm gonna give it two, two be swords because it's important and it, it was unlike anything else that was coming out at the time is it great not necessarily does it show a lot of promise for barry windsor smith who becomes a legendary artist yes oh yeah by issue 11 12 yeah bang but that dude is sore in this book. This yeah. does feel like a rocky start, but I'm giving it two swords because it was plucky, you know? Okay. <laughs> you know what? I'm giving it three swords. Joe, the three I'm, swords. I'm giving it three swords because I went in with no expectations. You know, it's the running joke on the show that Joe hates fantasy, which is not true. Just Until like Joe loves fantasy. Just like Stanley. <laughs> uh and so, like, you know, I, I have a passing familiarity with the character. I have never read this before. I was like, yeah, whatever. It'll be, I'm sure it'll be at least a fun exercise. And at the end of it, I was like, that was fun. That was fun. I found it interesting. I found the lore interesting. And if I had been of that age in 1970, I definitely would have wanted to spend my 15 cents on Conan number two. 
I definitely, three swords. Yeah, I definitely would have read more, <laughs> more Conan than the uh, the werewolf, <laughs> the werewolf by night book that I reviewed. I mean, yeah, I mean, I, all the things that you guys say about like it, it, it definitely has flaws, like every sure. single comic we read. But sure. like, if this is a buy it, skim it, leave it equivalent, it's a buy it. Right on, Joe. Strong it. skim it for me. <laughs> Well, I was coming in here giving it two swords, but I'm leaving here giving it three swords. Oh, wow. Oh, yeah. Oh, wow. Yeah. We turned Jared because, around on <laughs> Because, yeah, this talk turned my head around on it, uh, but that's my own fault. I get hung up on, like, I want a traditional sword and sorcery fantasy story, and now you're adding this futuristic element. I don't like it. But I got to step back and listen to what I even said before, where... Marvel Comics Conan is its own entity and it does its own thing. That's right. And 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 then your question, it did. It did pave the way for the flavor for the book for the rest of it. As we're now even approaching the 300th issue of it in legacy number. So it's like still a fun read for me. Still uh, my favorite book. It's a total of eight sorts. Jared, you didn't need us to tell you that it was good. The magic was inside you all along. By Crom, I believe it now. <laughs> Thanks for joining us, Wooly Toots. It is always good to talk to you, brother. Yeah, yeah. Love you. You too, buddy. Excelsior! Oh. That is it for THN 570, and there is plenty more sword swallowing action. Whoa, 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 whoa. Next don't, week. Don't you mean sword and sorcery? Joe, hit these kids up with a new question of the week, will you? We're going to give you guys a little bit more time to catch up on the celebrity, pardon me, the comic book deathmatch question from last week. Uh, and then we are going to make an effort to sync up our timing a little bit so yes. that. The new question of the week drops the same day as the new episode. So you've got about a week to get your answers in for the comic book deathmatch. Which two comic book characters do you want to see fight and who would win? We also said cartoon characters can be involved too. Yeah. I, you know what? Any fictional characters. Yeah. We said, cause like most of the answers that I got have been going on like at work and it's been comics versus cartoons. They were mostly like, cartoons. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. And they were like, I want to see Wolverine fight fucking Popeye. Yeah, <laughs> yeah exactly. Exactly. <laughs> so hit us up uh, on the THN forums, on the Facebook fan page, via email, via voicemail, 402-819-4894, or send an MP3 to twoheadednerd at gmail.com. We will collate all of your answers in an audio visual recorded post on the facebook page it will be the new thn cover to cover you're gonna love it we need you to participate we're gonna respond to it there'll be famous guests it's gonna be great apparently there will be famous guests it's that's right news to me also i want to know who wins the fight and why don't leave that out i want to know who wins and why let's do this in these interesting times it's not going to be part of the main show uh, but we're going to do our best to make sure that your voices are heard. So please continue to call in. If you are new to the show and you'd rather spend a little over an hour in Fing Fang Foom's purple pants than listen to another second, I assure you it's only because you haven't heard enough. The good news is you can hear the entire run of the THN in our digital long box archive at 
intuitinerd.com, but hosting that many episodes, it ain't cheap. So we want to thank our man who used to be on the streets, but he's playing it cool now and staying home and quarantining and doing the right thing because he's a smart guy, Damon Chan. Love that guy. Yeah, you know, our man on the virtual streets, Damon Chan. Yeah. <laughs> Before we go, our weekly shout-out goes to friend of the show, Michael Morisi, who just announced that he sold his first movie this week. He is the nicest friggin' he guy. I love really, that dude. He really is. Maurice said that he'll be writing the screenplay for the film and to expect a formal announcement very soon. For now, he teased that it's a horror film not based on comics. Boo. Still, though, good for him. Nah, fuck him. What? <laughs> Congrats. Congrats, Michael, and word to you, buddy. I he, can't wait to hear more about it. That dude is a super hardworking guy. He's a great writer. He tr- And he's just like a nerd's nerd. I love the guy, and I'm happy to see him succeeding. Until next time, true believers, remember to pre-order your DC comics from their new weird pre-order service that you probably can't even fucking pre-order from, and I guarantee it will drive your retailer insane. This is a two-headed nerd signing off.